Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. In the new era, thought itself will be transmitted by radio, is a quote from the Italian physicist and innovator Guglielmo Marconi, who was jointly awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1909 with Ferdinand Braun in recognition of their contributions to the development of the wireless telegraph. I thought this was a fitting quote for our guest, at the helm of one of Australia's leading media companies, ushering in the new era of audio. Our guest is Grant Blackley, Managing Director and Chief Executive Officer of Southern Cross Media Group, which owns 99 stations across FM, AM and digital radio under the Triple M and Hit Network brands, broadcasts 93 free-to-air TV signals across regional Australia, and operates Listener, Australia's free audio destination for consumers housing radio, podcasts, music, and news. Grant is also a director of Commercial Radio and Audio, as well as the Australian Association of National Advertisers. With over 35 years in media and entertainment sectors, Grant has served in numerous senior leadership positions, including at Network 10 as CEO from 2005 to 2010. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. For our first-time listeners from all over the world, please don't forget to follow on your preferred podcast platform and share with your friends and colleagues. And for our listeners in Brazil, Argentina and the Netherlands, a big Merry Christmas from all those at Blenheim. I'm your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blenheim Partners, Executive Search and Board Advisory. As a stalwart of the Australian media and entertainment industry, Grant shares of us his mantra of innovation and the willingness to take risk in an unforgiving market for those who stand still. He takes us on a tour of the House of Listener as they open our ears and change the way we listen and engage with arguably some of the best digital audio content on offer. So sit back and enjoy across the waves. Grant, we're only a couple of weeks away from Christmas. What's a great Christmas story we should hear from you? Let me think. It was probably about four years ago on a pre-COVID basis, and I thought to myself, uh, let's take the family and have a white Christmas. So we ended up in Montreal uh, before going to Quebec on Christmas Day, and I went to Montreal. Ever been to Montreal? In uh, No, I haven't. No. So it was minus 40, yep. um, minus 40 without the wind chill factor. We couldn't move from one shop to the next shop. We couldn't actually go outside without your hair freezing and you wouldn't touch it because it would fall out. Yeah, right. So, listen, it was a chilly yet, uh, you know, quite interesting little trip for us and the family. 
my girls were just about in tears with oh, the really? uh, the cold. But I must say, we got to Quebec a day later, and it was absolutely gorgeous sitting there at the you know the castle, doing all the things you should do in a uh, a winter Christmas. So that'd be my story. Beautiful winter wonderland, eh? Exactly. What, what are you planning for this Christmas? Not a lot this Christmas. There's been a lot of international travel this year, a lot of travel around all of our offices. So to that end, uh, a little bit of quiet time. I've got a place uh, up north in uh, in Kira. Yeah. Um, so I'll go up there and do not a lot. How are you feeling? Yeah, for the end of the year. It's been a pr- last feeling couple of years. It's pretty, pretty good, good, actually. Yeah. It's been character building the last number of years. Yeah. And I felt I had enough character before <laughs> two years ago, and I've now got a little bit more. Um, but all that being said, it does... You know, it does take its toll. Uh, you have to hit the, uh, you know, the pause button occasionally. But now's not that time. We've still got a lot of work to do between now and Christmas. We'll get that done, hopefully go into Christmas in good form. Let everyone have a bit of a break, recharge, yeah, effectively go offline as much as we all can, yep. and then come back sort of mid-January and uh, back into it for the year. So how is the uh, the world of media? world of media is quite good, actually. You hear different stories because media like to talk about media. And I think that's part of the problem with media, to be honest. You know, there can be major stories breaking, but uh, if there's a bit of gossip in media, it's often talked about or written about. Mm -hmm. Um, That said, those people who I guess in the media sphere are innovative, are collaborating with their industry peers Mm -hmm. and are actually working to improve the, the platform and the media and the product they produce, I think the world's a pretty good place. Those who are stagnant or complacent are having a tougher time. Media was hit pretty hard through COVID yeah. because it's a discretionary investment in in some people's mind. And uh, interesting enough, as you go into that, people like to you know reduce their expenses, cut their costs wherever they can across the business. And media was one of those line items. Yeah, right. So the whole industry, you know, across the board, went in pretty pretty deep in that first month of March period going yep. into COVID. Everyone adapted differently. Yep. Certain things couldn't couldn't happen within certain industries because of the way we measure audiences or collect data or people were unsure of consumption habits because we weren't doing the same things. Mm. We were principally at home. We weren't in the office. We weren't in, uh, in a commute situation in cars. Mm-hmm. So people sort of adapted to that at a consumer level. But at an investment or business level, they were unsure what the outcome would be. But so there was a bit a, of a pause. As a consumer, was I taking more media than ever before? You were actually consuming more media. I was, wasn't um, I? However, we didn't know that until nearly after the event. And I'll give oh, you an right. example. In the radio industry- So you couldn't sell that? You, then no one was buying It was that hard historic. to sell. So there was less yeah, demand right. because of the discretionary um, you know, cuts across the business. You yeah. know, and there was no entertainment and there was no travel and there was, there was none of that. And media was one of those line items as well. And effectively, the businesses that were in high demand, particularly the e-commerce businesses, they didn't have to spend because the business just got better and better. And we were having things delivered home um, and we were experimenting with that. But what happened through being at home is that we actually had the time to sit and consume more media in a different way than we ever had before, to trial new apps, to trial new products and services. Mm -hmm. And fundamentally, watching and listening to media went up. And in actual fact, everyone benefited from that. There has been change through that in terms of the way people have consumed, and we're now evaluating that change. Mm -hmm. But we're back to a level of normalcy. Mm -hmm. And the pleasing thing we certainly see as a radio company primarily is that we don't have a consumption problem. Our consumption's going up, uh, not going down. So I'm sure we can talk about that later. And I guess looking at changing government, world of politics, if you had the opportunity to change certain policy for the world of media in Australia... Anything you'd, you'd argue to put forward? 
Oh, there's always something we'd argue for. You know, I think less regulation and less legislation that affects our businesses better. Mm -hmm. Governments uh, over many decades have tinkered with media regulation. Have we ever got it sorted or? Listen, I think it's better than what it was, but, you know, we also have a term that's relatively short and the term that, you know, we have... No one does anything in government, whether they're returning or new, mm-hmm. to, to power in the first six to nine months because they're evaluating the marketplace. Of course, they don't do anything in the effectively the 12 months leading up to the following election. So you've got a window in the middle of influence to actually go and you know um, plead your case as an individual company or as, a, uh, as an industry. And governments don't like to tinker with media mm-hmm. um, because they see it as an influencer. Mm-hmm. in respect of how they're perceived or portrayed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot's been written about that. So everyone's quite shy. What about the external forces from offshore, you know, the social media, the new technologies? Are they, yeah, I think that, it's misunderstood by governments. I think governments have openly come out and said they've missed the opportunity to regulate yes. uh, and legislate you know, against certain things occurring. Yep. They were far too late. And now that it's somewhat entrenched in society, how do we actually deal with it as a government? And they've tried, and I don't think that's solved as yet. But, you know, we have regulation that ages back 20 years of things that might have occurred at a point in time because of the balance in power, and it's stuck there and no one wants to change it. And I'll give you an example. Going into an election, three days prior, no political party is allowed to put an ad on radio or TV because it might influence someone inadvertently in terms of who they might vote for. Of course, you can put an ad on any digital platform up until the minute you walk in. Is that right? So we have this thing purely for television and radio that we have to go to black and we can be prosecuted if an ad goes to air, you know, uh, inadvertently or purposely in that three days prior. But anyone else can do what you want. You can you can say what you want in a newspaper. You can say what you want online publishing. You can advertise. So we have digital products, and we can utilise those digital IP-enabled products to fundamentally tell a message. We just can't do it in our broadcast platforms. So there's small things like that, and there's there's a myriad of those. So, you know, the, the business is responsible. Um, the industry is responsible. And we always seek less regulation, uh, more self-regulation. And if we do the wrong thing, by all means, come and talk to us. But don't impose archaic legislation or regulation that's going to harm the industry. So Grant, where are you from? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Newcastle. Born in Newcastle, stayed in Newcastle till I was probably around the age of about 16. Um, And then then came to Sydney, came to the Big Smoke. And uh, appropriately have been in Sydney for ever since then. Uh, Spent three years in Melbourne, lived in Melbourne for three years and travelled the world extensively. So what did mum and dad do? Uh, Mum was in the advertising business uh, primarily and my father was in a a range of things. He was uh, one of the very first people, he actually introduced Levi's into uh, the country and used to sell Levi's up and down the coast, 501s. And he also had a bowl shop and a a range of things. So, you know, very- He was an entrepreneur, was he? Uh, very much so. Yeah, um, right. So to that end, you know, very humble beginnings. Yep. But, uh, you know, over time, they uh, they separate. So I actually lived with my grandparents for about, I would say, three years. Yeah, okay. One brother went one way, one sister went the other way, and I stayed in the middle. So I did that and then finally reconnected uh, years later, actually back with uh, with my mother in Sydney. So still mother and father are alive, so they're uh, they're still doing what they're doing, Okay, uh, just not talking as much as they used to. So you made the move to the big smoke? Yes. Were you going to follow a particular path or what, what were you looking to do? 
No, I was still at school at that point. So I ended up going to school in uh, North Sydney. Okay. Soon thereafter, you know, I'd been brought up uh, very much on a surfing culture in Newcastle, as one does. Yeah. Uh, it's a gorgeous culture. Yeah, it was Mark Richards um, around those days. Too, exactly. So he used to go to the same school. He oh, would, did he really? He would come and, you know, mentor all the students at Morris Brothers in uh, Newcastle. So to that end, you know, wonderful. And I grew up with all those guys, surfed with all those guys from, from Mark to Nicky Woods and all of those. Um, you know, Mary with the Beach. Nice part of the world. So you any good? Uh, I surf for about 20, 25 years. Okay. Uh, I don't uh, don't surf as much as I used to uh, for a whole range of reasons. <laughs> we won't go into that. Um, but yeah, I loved it and uh, still do. So to that end, yeah, I tried to uh, become more prolific in it, but uh, who knows? It's a really good lifestyle through that. But I then came to Sydney mm-hmm. uh, and I came to Sydney, finished schooling in uh, there. Um, didn't do a lot. Went surfing again. Used to live at Narrabeen, okay. um, went surfing around that area and, you know, mowed some lawns, did some odd jobs uh, until someone said, hey, I think you should actually do something uh, with your life. Um, and to that end, I actually uh, applied for a traineeship at George Patterson Bates Advertising. Oh, yeah, okay, right. And in those days, only two companies did it, Clemenger and George Patterson Bates. George Patterson Bates sitting there at 255 George Street in the city. And in that environment, they would take in five or six dispatch boys That's and right. girls, yeah. and we would uh, go into the organization. So I I was adopted into one of those things. I used to uh, drive around Jeff Cousins, Keith Cousins in their cars, Alex Hamill. I used to park the cars, uh, sometimes a little close to the wall, but that's a separate story. Um, and, you know, everyone went through that entry system. And then I ended up in uh, the media department and going into the media department, I stayed there for a couple of years. We then all moved to North Sydney uh, because George Patterson Bates uh, yep. left the city. Yeah. And I was in the media environment working with guys like Bill McGilchrist and Hugh Watt. Mm-hmm. And I started- Were you in sales? What would you start to develop into sales? Which, or which forte no, I was actually, uh, I was in media at that point. Yeah. Um, so, you know, everyone in dispatch, some went to account service, some went to creative. Yeah. Uh, I went to media. Okay. I thought that was my forte. And going into that, I, you know, worked on a whole range of companies from Berger Paints and British Paints to APD, Snack Foods, otherwise known as CCs. Yeah. And thoroughly enjoyed all of that work and had some, you know, some some great people that I worked for. But then I started working with the then national media director, which was Hugh. And Hugh said, I want you to work with me at setting up some systems to negotiate against the networks. Uh, and computers really weren't around at that point in time to any major degree. Yeah. So I designed programs and, and set and actually started negotiating for Hugh against 7, 9, and 10. Yeah, right. And I did that uh, for about 18 months until uh, a gentleman by the name of John McAlpine, who was then sales director of a, of a company that represented Channel 10, yep. said, uh, you're a bit of a pain and you're doing things that, <laughs> you know, uh, aren't necessarily making this a free-flowing conversation grant. So to that end, I think you should come and join us. Whatever year that was, I think that was about uh, sort of mid or early 1990s. I actually left uh, George Patterson Bates. Um, Alex Hamill, you know, made a few offers to to let me stay, and I, but I didn't. I went across to the uh, the dark side, being the yeah. media side, and uh, I started there, and then I spent twenty five years at Channel Ten. What was it like in those days in the world of media? Very busy. You know, you're talking about the eighties and nineties. Yeah, pretty incredible times, weren't they? It was wonderful time. It was uh, it was uh, vigorous. 
What I would say, you know, every business and every market's about supply and demand. And at at that point in time, demand for media was so high. Uh, The persona of media was that we'd we'd ask the clients to come to, or the agencies to come to meet us at the restaurant to do business. Um, You know, gone are those days. Because at that point, television was a commanding position in the marketplace. Uh, You didn't have pay television. You didn't have the internet. You didn't have any other... So you had newspapers, you had radio, out of home really hadn't developed at that point in time. So TV, for all it's worth, was actually batting well above its weight, was in high demand. We have fixed supply within the environment of that. So there was a lot of people, you know, uh, wanting that airtime. And remember multi-channeling. So you only had three channels, seven, nine, ten, the ABC and SBS, which were both Mm non-commercial. So you had a lot of people wanting a lot of product on three stations, which were governed by legislation as to how many ads you could put to air. So it was a wonderful place to be in high demand. You still had to maximize your outcome. It was still a fiercely competitive business between the three. And there's a few egos in media you might have seen Mm. over the years and a few billionaires and egos that come with it who own those networks. And one must remember, all three networks have been in receivership twice. And that's mainly because people running it or owning it don't understand the the principles of the media space. Um, And they do things that are irrational and therefore, and then there's a reset and then you move forward again. So they're good businesses fundamentally? Good businesses, tougher businesses today, particularly those who haven't invested in innovation uh, and transforming their business. And you see that, you know, at the moment, let's take television. And television's only a small proportion of our business. We have about 105 licenses and we broadcast Channel 10 to all of the places outside of Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, and Adelaide, Perth. Yep. Uh, we also broadcast Seven in Tasmania and in Darwin, and we also do Channel 9. So it's 20% of our business. It's 105 of those licenses. And we have, you know, pretty deep relations as an affiliate with those principal parties. But, you know, the business is tough. Those who've invested in platforms that look at streaming platforms fundamentally have balanced their income and I guess started to create new forms of revenue and connection with communities. And those who haven't, are obviously seeing the pain of that as we speak at this point. Um, because, you know, as we know, coming out of COVID, we've probably all got more live streaming um, content plays than we ever have. Mm. And, you know, I've got probably five or six uh, because I should, you know, whether it's Netflix, Disney, Paramount, BritBox, you name it, Binge, I've got them all. Um, it's a wonderful tax deduction for a person in my position, but... That said, you know, the household normally has about 2.8. And that's in reasonable economic times. Um, In better economic times, that'll grow and it might even contract in times where it's a bit tougher. So if you don't innovate and you don't follow where the consumer's going, fundamentally you are going to become stagnant um, and possibly irrelevant. So you can't afford to do that. So why'd you stay 10 or 10 for so long? 25 years is a long time. It is, but I'm a... And it wasn't always number one. Actually, it was never number one in 25 years, which was the beauty of 10. So we were the- Come on, that's the oldest line in the book, isn't it? No, not at all. We were were at many stages um, of that 25 years. Coming out, so Rupert Murdoch owned it. I joined about that time. It was then owned by Frank Lowy, Westfield. 
And, you know, I do talk about people who own it, who have an agenda mm. and a lot of money. And they ran the business and, you know, went after content plays um, against Kerry Packer and um, in Hollywood and unfortunately paid too much for content. It couldn't be monetized. And lo and behold, the, the company went into receivership. So I worked through the receivership phase, and then I worked for a company called CanWest, who was a Canadian-based company with Australian mm -hmm. investors, and the investors included you know, Jack Cowan, John Singleton, Robert White, all of those guys came in. And that was interesting because we used to sit outside of 10 in a representation company. It was then brought inside 10 because the new owners said, listen, I think we need the sales department and the revenue department, the only source of income in the business, not outside the business. So we all went and then officially worked for Channel 10 at that point in time. And in doing that, you sort of become part of that that family and the fabric of, of 10. But 10 went on to be the most profitable network in Australia. At times, we're seven and nine were in receivership. So we had the highest margins and the most profitable because we had a very clear mandate as to who we were. We didn't have to be number one on all people. And let me just say there is not an advertiser in this country who actually buys on all people. And you're seeing this debate in the press at the moment between seven and nine. Mm. You know, I won the year. Now I won the year. I would say the person who wins the year is the person who wins 25 to 54s because that's where over 70% of the money yes. that we're briefed as media companies is directed. So you can win all people. It's the same as radio ratings. You know, you read it in the Daily Telegraph or you read it in trade press. Yep. Who wins all people? Well, I can tell you it's it's the AMs, it's the talk radio, and they get the least amount of share out of the radio industry because there are no briefs and people looking for that audience set. So you know, the body of money is in the middle. So we at 10 had a very clear strategy. We had to regroup. So you, you CEO now or? No, not at all. Your strategy or what were you? No, I was always in sales. Precisely, so I came yeah. into sales um, after leaving George Pats. I came in as a... Uh, a sales executive. I then went to a group sales manager. After that, I uh, was then sent to Melbourne uh, to manage Channel 10 Melbourne. And at that point in time, I also became national sales director, which wasn't head of sales, but national sales director under John McAlpine. And then effectively, John was made CEO. And I effectively then, he said, right back to Sydney, please. Uh, I hadn't finished in Melbourne, interesting enough. I love being in Melbourne. I hadn't lived away from Sydney or Newcastle for that matter. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in many respects, I wanted to stay there a bit longer. And I'd formed some really good friendships and business partnerships in Melbourne. So I'd thrown myself into it. It was pre-kids. You know, I was only 29 at this point in time. Um, and I decided to myself, yep, I'll go back to Sydney. So I went back to Sydney and became, you know, head of sales. Um, I spent 10 years in that um, and then was... John retired and I was appointed CEO 10 years later. Were you ready for the role? As ready as one could be. You know, if you look at, you know, and you're never ready, by the way, but you think you're ready. And, you know, I always tell the story to many people I talk to. After the first year, you realise how, how ready you weren't. You thought you were going in. Um, a year later, you go, gee, I've learned a lot this year. And then you have to remind yourself that a year later, you go, actually, um, you know, when I said last year I'd learnt a lot, I actually have learnt even more. Yeah, right. And that goes on for about five years, in my opinion, where you actually learn aspects of the business that you haven't been exposed to. 
you know, coming down that sales funnel mm. in terms of policy regulation, corporate communications, that wasn't a part of my suite. You know, I had to have a deep appreciation for the finances of the company and work within that. And as the single source of income, you know about that, but you're not the CFO. You're not the head of people and culture or HR as it was known yeah, in, those days, in, yeah. in those days. In terms of operations and engineering, which is now called technology, you had to have an appreciation for it, but not a deep understanding of it. So as a CEO, you have to understand each of those attributes and you have to work within that in a harmonious way, not only with the people within the company and your board and shareholders and investors, but also your peers in the industry. Because, you know, as an industry, we unite to put a position forward to other stakeholders like government, et cetera. So you think you're ready at the time. I thought, uh, you know, uh, at that point in time, I thought I was ready. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think I was. Um, however, the learning cycle was just beginning. What did you set out to achieve? Now, you're given the role of CEO. You must have had some pretty big ambitions in your mind. Yeah, I wanted to make it a better place to work. I wanted to make it a, a more sustainable, profitable company. And fundamentally, I wanted everyone to be proud uh, of being at 10. And I think I achieved that in the period that I was there. Didn't want to knock the others off by rating? Is there anything in that regard or no. that's all part of it? No, not really. At the end of the day, I'm very focused on what we wanted to achieve, not what everyone else was doing. Yeah, so you, you're cognizant of what everyone else is doing. But if we wanted to win the ratings for all people, we would have lost the balance sheet. And effectively, you can chase as much content as you want globally and locally. Um, but unless you stand for something and have a real finite strategy as to what it is and you can portray that strategy to the market, people don't know who you are. So we were known as the youthful network. It was because we focused on 16 to 39s. We pursued content in Hollywood from Fox, which included the Simpsons, this, 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 you know, we had Seinfeld, whatever. All of that product at that point, and we commissioned product like Big Brother, Australian Idol, MasterChef, the panel. We created the project in in those years, uh, which is still on air today. So all of that product was created. And when we'd maxed out on 16 to 39s, remembering all the money's in 25 to 54s, and there is an overlap there, by the way. So you'd have an overlap of about 60, 40 in favor of 25 to 54s. Do I stick around once I get older? They te- you tend to because you, you, you develop habitual behaviors in terms of what you like. So yes, you can stick around within that. However, we got to a point where we couldn't get any better than we were in 16 to 39s. We were winning by uh, a high margin. However, we weren't appealing to as much money as we would like to in the broader market. So we created a very simple line and people talk very definitively in demographics. So what demographic are you in? And the moment you put yourself in that position, you become a target uh, for the media, the press, and the market to actually say that you're not achieving that result or whatever the case might be. So we came up with a statement. And I said, no, we're for the young and young at heart. Well, it stumped everyone. No one knew what that meant. That meant that me, now as an older person, if I wanted to enjoy Channel 10 because I felt young at heart, that was all okay. So we decided we weren't a demographic, but a psychographic. And in those terms, people said, I like that. And that made them smile. And they said, okay, I can see that. Meanwhile, seven and nine are saying, I've won, you've won, 25 to 54s versus all people. It was absolutely irrelevant. So we let them play that game and we remained um, acutely focused on ourselves, where we were going and how we wanted to, in a stepping stone approach, improve 
the business, make it more resilient, more repeatable, and have an innovative attitude to experimentation, which breeds success and failure. So what was the biggest failures then? Biggest failure? Uh, at one point in time, we thought uh, the news with George Negus had actually be a corker. And what happened in those days, um, and we'd, we'd had a lot of successes. They're easy to talk about. In terms of the uh, the failures, yeah, that was a failure. Um, you know, Neighbours had run its day. Yeah, yep. We were moving that onto a multi-channel, which we called Eleven. We'd done a joint venture with, with um, CBS, Paramount. And it was a joint venture, first of its kind in Australian media, where you know, they owned a piece of the equity of that station, which is in part why they own it today, by the way, yep. the whole of the company, I mm. say. So we created that model and effectively we moved Neighbours off the principal. It had been in that slot Monday to Friday, 6.30 for 30 years. Mm. So you had to replace it with something. And we didn't want to move the project out of seven o'clock that we just created and born and was maturing beautifully. So we had to do something. And we had the leading news service for 30 years at five o'clock. So we pushed a different version into six o'clock. Didn't work. George didn't resonate. He was wonderful on 60 Minutes over all the years, um, but he didn't resonate and he was probably more ABC, which was not in tune with us. So, you know, a lesson learnt there, but it was a cheap lesson, not an expensive lesson. Yep. And today, you know, things are a bit different and you do see elongated news services now. What's changed in terms of ingredients for success for TV during those days compared to today's days? You've always had to have discipline in TV. And if you lack discipline... Uh, you fail. So, you know, discipline in terms of the way in which you um, procure content. Yep. And ego drives uh, a lack of discipline, and that's in both entertainment and sport. Um, well, there's plenty of it. Yeah, it's very interesting. You know, everyone thinks sports rights have gone through the roof and can't get any higher, and guess what? They continue to. Most recently, I was at a conference in uh, New York, and I won't say who the person was, but it was one of the largest uh, groups in the world. And the question came from the room, um, is sport you know, too expensive? And they said, no, it's not. Because library of entertainment, and there's $155 billion being spent per annum on entertainment content, which is displaced across free-to-air networks and streaming platforms in the world, $155 billion. Um, That's because Apple, Disney, Paramount have all entered the fray on the way through Netflix, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And they said, the problem is the cost per hour of entertainment has gone up fourfold in two years. So there are only so many actors, writers, directors, cinematographers to produce. So the demand side, his demand again, has gone up. Supply is limited within reason of, yep. of good actors, writers, directors. Yep. So the prices has gone up. So to that end- We need something else. Cost per hour is four times. Yeah, Sports right. not rising at four times. No. Sports rising maybe- at 50, 60, 70%, sometimes 100%. So in as this person said, yes, sport was becoming unattainable, but then it became an issue of I think I need it versus I, I just want it. But all of a sudden it's become affordable because the other options of entertainment have gone up fourfold in two years. And that's unsustainable, you would think. Mm. But, you know, on that basis, the, the whole world's changing. Is the advertising revenue coming in? Again, through the period of COVID, um, everyone suffered to some degree. There's a sense of normalisation um, that's appeared in TV. TV is driven by national advertisers, which is 95% of the contribution. 5% is a local or direct market, SMEs. So in any economic crisis, and we haven't had a health crisis of the nature we've ever seen, certainly not in the cycle of 
38 years in the business that I've had, um, I haven't seen that health crisis model. You know, we saw some things in the 80s and the 90s, but not of this nature. But we've always had a lot of um, economic crisis. And the economic crisis, national advertisers always stop investing first. So they go into the downturn harder, but they also come out earlier. The SME market, which is less sophisticated and smaller businesses and smaller balance sheets, mm -hmm. fundamentally they go in a bit later, but they also come out later. So TV's recovered well. It's actually come back to its pre-pandemic levels at this point, albeit certain the the structure of the contribution of people or segments that are providing that uh, revenue are different. Yeah. The auto industry is is a major case. Yep. In Across any media, auto is about the third largest category of spend. With supply chain issues, try and buy a car today. Um, Can't get a second-hand one. That's right. So to that end, not only is the brand marketing less, but the dealer principal at the local level is less because they don't have supply of cars. So the shape of it's changed. Radio is very different. I'll give you an example. In our... You know, we have a hundred radio stations we own. Effectively, uh, our regional network, which encompasses somewhere in the order of 70 stations, and we're just in just about every town in Australia. And in that particular case, um, we would have about 55% of our income coming from the local community and SME market and 45% of our income from national advertisers. So we went into the downturn later, but we're also coming out later. Interesting. But our national response those 1,350 national advertisers in Australia, every media company who has a stronger disposition to national has recovered well. Mm. That's why you've seen the out-of-home industry yep. mixed because they've got a blended outcome of SMEs and national mm. at the same time. Grant, you're dealing with some particular personalities in the world of media, as you've alluded to. Your CEO, you're 39 years old, I think, roughly when yes, you got the gig. When I, yeah, when I took up the 10 roll. Okay, so as you say, first couple of years, you're learning to those five-year mark. Where were you spending your time as a CEO? Is it around the people? Is it around the strategy? Where, where, where were you getting taken? All of the above. Again, coming back to what I said earlier, you know, the one place I didn't need to be was in the sales department. Being there, done that, and you shouldn't have that covered. And I shouldn't because I'd put someone into that role to replace me. And the thing I couldn't do was be the person to be telling them what to do every day. So in actual fact, I spent... You know, I would say 90% of my time on everything bar the income. Uh -oh. It was never far from home, mind you, um, <laughs> and I always have an opinion um, and maybe advice on how to do that. But I had to let that person take the reins and run with it to create their own relationships and their own momentum. Mm -hmm. So to that end, I spent a lot of time everywhere else. You know, at, at that point in time, we didn't have leadership meetings as a company. So I formed a leadership team and the leadership team met every week. We've been doing that. Ever since 2005 and companies I've run, um, on Tuesday at 10 a.m., we sit down for two hours, whoever the leadership team is and the company I'm working for, and we sit down and we talk about the issues of the day. And the way that I run that is to say, we're all experts in our, our own field, and you will have the CFO and you'll have the head of policy, et cetera, et cetera. And you have to bring you know, your expertise to the table in a very open and willing capacity. However... Everyone around that table is allowed and should have a view on your business yeah. and actually because it affects them in some way in the performance of the company. So to that end, it can become quite robust. It develops, in my opinion, a very positive culture 
And it's a culture that then flows to the rest of the organization and even outside of the organization on that. And I've been amazed at the success of those things. And I'm a, I'm a sharer. There's not too many stories I won't tell. So I will stand up. Um, I'll give you an example. You know, in the early days of 10, when we were putting forward the strategy, multi-channeling was coming to market. Mm-hmm. I would stand in front of a thousand people. We'd... Um, you know, it was only Sydney, Melbourne, uh, Brisbane, Adelaide, Perth, because that was 10. That was the assets we had. I still do it today where we've got 1,700 people in 65 locations around Australia. And I will stream an hour conversation about the strategy of the company. I don't leave much out because everyone needs to know, and I trust them implicitly. And, you know, it's been proven time and time again that I've told them things that in actual fact have never leaked outside of that meeting. So we take great pride in that. If someone does, that's a separate issue. That's a breach of trust. But I work on a uh, a model that there's not much information that can bring the company down you know, in an isolated capacity, in a cumulative capacity maybe, but not in an isolated. So I can tell them just about anything, if not everything, and I'll be very descriptive and I'll talk about the pros and the cons because I think the more every person in the company understands the opportunity, the challenges in the business, um, the more, as we put our strategy to work, uh, the more effective our momentum and our progress will be. So as a CEO, well, during the days of 10, we'll get to the next yep. part of the journey. What do you think you really bring to the table? What's the key strength? I know you could say all the above, but is anything in particular you think you really stand out? I bring a very collaborative leadership style um, that yeah. Acts, yeah, that brings everyone together. I will stand behind all of those people as I see fit. I think it's the sum of the parts are always stronger than the individual. So to that end, that's probably the one thing I bring. I'm also a very curious person. So I'm curious by nature. I will always try something new. And that, that could be a bit of a pain for the people who, who work around me. But I'll always say, have we thought of doing the following? Mm-hmm. Why aren't we doing the following? Yep. And even when I might have six in the leadership team who say that won't work. I'll go, no problem. And I'll go and do the work and I'll come back and six weeks later I'll say, do you think about it differently because I've done some homework? Here it is. This is where we are. This is the opportunity. This is the stepping stones we might be able to take. And everyone goes, okay, with that information, I think that's fair. You've got a reputation for being pretty brave. On my homework, I'm making my calls before today. Yep. Where's the self-confidence come from? Um, My curious nature. At the end, simple as that. Totally. If you stand still, you're going backwards. So you have to be curious and innovative in whatever you do. That doesn't meet everyone's expectations and objectives, by the way. But it's worked for me more often than it hasn't. It's worked for the companies that I've worked with. It can be misunderstood in the market. Like in the current marketplace, again, coming back to this conference in the US that I was at, very heavy hitters, and they're saying the stock market is not of the attitude to reward anyone that's taking a risk. I don't know how not to take a risk. I have to take a risk because if you don't, the risk of failure is higher. So to that end, you know, I'm sure we'll come to it, you know, the creating listener, doing multi-channeling the way we did at 10. Oh, that's open for debate too. Which is that? Listener. Yeah, and I'm happy to talk about that one. So to that end, you work through all of those things. You know, uh, I see people who are risk adverse and their companies are stagnant. Yep. Um, their culture is stagnant to negative. Yep. And you know, I wouldn't operate in a company of that nature. And I certainly can't lead one that is that risk adverse. Uh, that's probably best for someone else to lead. All right. So what happened at Channel 10? 
You got you got finished up. Yeah, finished up. Um, actually, Not, I was fired from Channel Ten. Yeah, so it wasn't on your terms then. Um, it's that's open for debate. Yeah, well, it could be. Your so terms, interesting. So. I had we had uh, three new shareholders into Ten. Um, their name was James Packer, Lachlan Murdoch, and Gina Reinhardt. Uh, now you know I I developed a lot of character with the the board I was with. It's a nice way of putting it. Uh, a, you know, a very <laughs> experienced. Yep. Um, and uh, wealthy board in many respects. Yep. Uh, but we did have three new people come into the business with- And your contract had been extended as well, hadn't it? Yeah, contract just been extended by the board yeah. um, for a couple of years. The new shareholders came in and said, we want to change the way the business is moving forward. I didn't agree with that strategy from the outset. And I said, if you employ this strategy, the company will become a lesser company and it will become a smaller company. And they said, well, we want to move this path. And I said, but it's not for me. So we came to a stalemate and therefore I knew I was leaving. And I said, you know, be careful what you wish for. Um, well, that's, I, that's their prerogative. And that's their prerogative. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's major shareholders' prerogative on the way through. We were doing about $200 million a year in profit or EBITDA at that point in time. They started focusing back on an audience of 16 to 39s, which was the old strategy, the Cam West strategy. And the strategy of the day that they invented in 1990 to actually rebirth 10 out of receivership was right for the time. It wasn't right for 2012. Foxtel was on the scene. Foxtel had Fox 8. SBS was now commercial. Apparently, the internet was around you know, and was flourishing and YouTube was in market. My point being that for 16 and the 39s, the market had changed. Yeah, a lot more choice. The distribution platform and content availability was wide. Yeah. It was therefore intrusive. And if you were to go into a smaller pocket, which was your historical pocket, there was actually less money in that pot. So when they went there, and less of a curious mind and more of – and now we'd created MasterChef um, mm. and launched MasterChef. That gave us more numbers in 25 to 54 than we could ever dream about and stayed there and still is there today. Mm. But effectively – in doing all of that, we took on a risk. That was a you know $30 million risk in year one. And everyone said, I hope it's going to work. And I said, well, there's a big guy. He wears a carafe and there's a little guy. He's a bit angry, but he's a great chef. And I described that to the board. And I remember the board of at the day said, well, I hope this works, Grant. And I said, well, that makes two of us, but I think the ingredients are right. So, you know, and that's, that's history now on the way through. The new 10 decided to go younger. It decided to go and play in a shallower pool mm. where there was less money. They were less curious, so they actually took less risk in terms of trying to entertain their audience. So their ratings went down, yep. their audience went down. And when your audience and your ratings go down, what typically happens is people cut costs, you cut costs, you invest less, you invest less, your audience goes down. Your audience goes down, your revenue goes down. Until terrible. such a point, uh, it was about 12 months out, I remember I was doing some consulting work and I said to a group of investors uh, and people I was working with, I said, I can pretty much pick the week that they'll go broke. And they did. And everyone said, no, they can't go broke, Grant. Have a look at the shareholders. Have a look at the register. And I said, trust me, it will go broke because as night follows day, this is what will occur. And unfortunately, that did occur. But, you know, tens in better shape now. Um, it is owned by, you know, a massive company in mm. Paramount. And people underestimate that. So, you know. But it's an unusual playground. It's an offshore. Not at all. Not at all. I think- But is, there anything, is, there, is it run locally at all? Yes, it is. It is run locally, but under the auspices of a, um, you know, international company with a $65 billion market cap in the US. You've got to remember, 10 is now a promotional vehicle 
and conduit for the deployment of Paramount Plus, which is a streaming product behind a credit card. So it's a changing of the business model. A lot of e-commerce businesses in Australia have been born through traditional support. Have a look at REA. Have a look at Stan. Yeah, Stan yeah. was born by Fairfax yep. and Nine coming together, offering $50 million a year, $25 million a year of wraparounds yep. on your Sydney Morning Heralds and yes. your, your ages, and $25 million of Nine advertising together, $50 million. For five years, they did that, $250 million. It was in their prospectus. That was what delivered the awareness and the creation of Stan. That model has been played out globally and locally because – E-commerce businesses all start at zero and they have to grow. They have to grow their product, their awareness and their usage. And in doing that, you need that awareness. So the listener product, you know, we own TV. We'll spend $15 million a year on ourselves in kind. And that's just advertising. Mm -hmm. So we're spending on ourselves that otherwise we don't have to pay cash for. So that works for us. We're getting the the name, the brand, and um, I guess the opportunity for consumers to embrace listener across in a very visual capacity to a uh, a wide audience mm. uh, across Australia. And then business will follow thereafter. That's the plan. So you moved on out of Network 10? Moved out of 10. Um, How'd you feel? Is it, you know, 25 years there? Was it- uh... Listen, my 25 years was, I took every year as a, a new year. And I do that in my life. Yeah. So at the end of every year, around Christmas time, I'll have a quiet moment to myself. Uh, and you look at it and you say, okay, what's what's happened? What have I achieved? Yep. What could I have done better? And how do I actually reinvent myself for the next year? I did that at 10 for 25 years. And I do it generally in, in my life to see what I want to do for the next 12 months. So it's a Christmas thing that I tend to do. Because it's the time where, in most cases, you're taking a break. you got clean air. You're doing something different. You're around family and, you know, you got that time to think. And in that case, that's what I've done for 25 years. So you look back and you go, 25 years, yeah, it was a long time. Uh, it wasn't that long for me because it was 25 one-year slots yeah, right. uh, on the way through. Yep. But uh, listen, in good fortune, I was paid a lot of money to go and I wasn't allowed to work for anyone else. Mm. So I wasn't allowed to uh, – so for the first time, I experienced gardening leave. If you haven't, it's a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful outcome. <laughs> Given I'd, I'd known that this was a uh, most likely going to occur, yes. I'd planned uh, a holiday and everyone was very surprised that I went as quickly as I did. I spent three months at home to decompress because you do. After 25 years in a corporate role working at the pace you do, uh, and I'm a person that gets up at 5, 5.30 at the desk by 7 and you try and fit everything else in, in your life on the way through. And media, like any CEO role, 24-7, seven days a week, most of the time. So to that end, you've got to decompress. Mm. Um, otherwise, you're not going to enjoy the whole day. But short story, I'd planned it, and my two girls were 14 and 12 at that point, uh, and I planned 44 weeks overseas. So we went overseas. 44 weeks? Yeah. Did you really? We came home twice in that period. But at the end of the day, I, I, I said, I want to go to all the places I haven't been in the world. I love travel. Uh, I love food and I love exploring new culture. So to that end, uh, we went away. The headmaster of the school said, uh, we'll set up a private online forum um, for the girls. They sort of interacted in that when they didn't. We went on a lot of planes, trains, you know, um, boats, you name it. And in that particular case, we had time to not educate them, but if they wanted to do work and we took the opportunity to do it, we did. So, you know, that's something you never get back in life. So going overseas with your wife, 
um, and two girls. They still talk about it today. You, I can sit around the table. The girls are now 25 and uh, 23. And they'll say, Dad, do you remember we were in Istanbul and we went around the corner? It was your birthday. And we went to the little blue restaurant. And we sat upstairs and had the following. And you go, wow, I, I can't remember that you, you know, I, I just can't comprehend that. Yeah, right. So, you know, all that being said, so I went and spent a year traveling. And I remember I was sitting on, uh, sitting on the beach reading a book and my phone dinged. And it said, you're free of your probation. You know, you're allowed to work. So I put the phone back down and kept reading my book. About three months later, I decided I thought I I should do something because, you know, uh, too young not to do anything, too curious not to do anything. So I started looking and did a range of consultancy sort of things. Um, I was mentoring some people in the industry. Mm -hmm. Secondly, I was working with some private equity groups in respect of looking at the media sector and looking outside the media sector at potential deals and whatnot. Yeah. And, you know, there was a range of articles that people were saying, you know, Blackley's leading the following to buy the following. Yeah. Some of those might have been true. <laughs> I won't talk to those, but not all of them, but okay. some of them. At the same time, I was approached by Hugh Marks. And Hugh and I had worked for, you know, we'd had Big Brother on Channel 10 for many years. He was head of Southern Star. So we'd known each other and... He was out of Southern Star. I was out of 10. And he said, listen, I'd like to work with you. So we went and bought the largest talent agency in Australia. So we had 400 people that we represented from actors, writers, directors. And we went and bought that company and we created a, a, and bought partially into a, um, a production company as well. And we represented that, that talent locally and internationally in many respects. You enjoy it? Yeah, it was quite good, but, you know, it was subscaled to what mm. I was used to. Yeah. But it was in the business. I was still active. I found it uh, interesting and curious. I did the things that I knew I could do well and not the things I couldn't, and he would do the other things. And at some point, I was we were sitting there, and, you know, I'd done some other private equity work as well, and then all of a sudden I was invited in to sort of run Southern Cross Austeria. And at the same time, Hugh was invite. Hugh had been a director of Channel Nine, yep. and soon thereafter, he yes, went on okay. to run Channel Nine. Okay. So we both went separate ways. I sold RGM back to him, and I'm not sure what he's done with his share. But there you go. What was the mandate for the new role? Um, ensure the company survived and improve the company. Where was it at? It was in. It was in interesting shape. Had had some couple of tough years before that. Really tough years. Yeah. In actual fact, everyone said, "Why would you take that on?" And that, that breeds that not too many people know about my, uh, you know, I, I'll take on a challenge um, every time. So That's the mongrel in you, is it? It's the curious nature and the belief that I can improve the asset. And, you know, you're going into a company with $680 million of debt. They just lost Kyle and Jack. Yeah. They had issues with their radio network. They're yeah. a fully linear broadcast model, one to many. So there was no digital facing asset didn't exist within the company for the most part. They might have published a website or two. That was about it. They operated at a cultural and operational level separate to each other. So it was four companies within one company. There was Osterio. The metro network, there was the regional network, and they were the kids that had to sit in the back seat and not be spoken about. There was the TV network. You know, they uh, they were sort of banished off to somewhere else. And there were a couple of people in digital who were sitting somewhere near Ibiza. And I said, <laughs> right. Uh, and they weren't talking to anyone, but they were having the time of their life. And you come into the organisation, 65 officers, 2,500 people, Wonderful asset in many respects, and it's localism and roots into the local community. Were you seen as a risk? 
because you hadn't no, done, I was seen you hadn't as, done radio. No, you I was do, seen more as a transformational not? agent for that company. It needed um, transformation. It needed an injection. So Peter Bush, the then chair, said to me, listen, we've got a couple of things we need you to do. The debt's unsustainable at 680 million. Secondly, we have a maturing affiliate agreement with the network, um, which then represented about 30% of our earnings at that point in time because our radio was smaller. So you have to negotiate that. Uh, We don't have a digital strategy. You've got to create that. Our culture is uh, not great. And outside of that, um, you know – All's good. All's good. So (laughs) all the best with that. What do I sign? And I said yes. And I said yes because – you know, I, I knew the industry. Radio is very similar to TV in some respects, but very different in others. Okay. you got to remember, you're dealing with the same group of advertisers. Yep. The 1300 you deal with on the left side is the same on the right side. They're both broadcast platforms. One's visual, one's audio. It's a one-to-many, very similar operational and technology or engineering requirements from both. Um, the industries are, are very similar in many respects. So there was a lot of similarities between the two. But they're very different creatively. And the attributes of radio and its grassroots local you know, connection yep. is far superior to any other media. Yep. That surprises you? Yeah, it surprises me more every day. Yeah. And it surprises me more when you look at all of the events that are happening in, in Australia at the moment, whether they're floods, fires, you name it. You know, who's there? Yep. Most recently through the floods, Telco Towers had gone down flooded yep. or taken out by a fire, if we're talking different incidents. TV, it's a networked thing, so there is there is no local updates. Mm. Facebook, well, they're playing around with, you know, if you can get a connection, because if the towers are down, you can't. Yep. So what do people listen to to get their emergency or community update? Radio. Radio. Yeah. You know, I often say to people, very hard to take your TV in the boat with you. You know, but you can take your uh, device, your radio, and you can. And so our guys work around the clock. Or got on the car from getting out of the fires, right? Correct, in every single case. So we become an essential service, and the government deem us an essential service. Yeah, right. And seeing we're the largest radio group in Australia, we have that obligation to the community. And that's what's what makes us special uh, beyond many. Remembering that a lot of you know, whether it's News Corp or the old Fairfax, they had started to exit the regions, a myriad of papers, and we're talking hundreds of papers, mm. don't exist any longer. Mm. So in some ways, the more people exit the regions, the more we move into it to create a competitive advantage because localism is the antidote to globalism. So as you see Spotify coming into the market in our audio world, yep. what don't they do? They local. don't do localism. Yep. And what do people resonate with mostly? Australian content, local content. And local to me is Australian. Yeah, but hold it, hold it. Yep. Is listener local? Entirely. Is it? Totally. Okay, all right. So, you know. Um, is it? I, I thought it was more of a flip the other way in what, in what you're trying to What did you think it was? I, I, thought, I thought you were getting clientele. You're building up your business clientele. So the revenues are coming in and you're doing distribution on a mass scale in that sense. And that was effective for you as opposed to actually appealing to me on a local on a regional as opposed to a state. I see the state okay. side, but I could be completely wrong. That's why I'm here having a so chat with thankfully you. thankfully, <laughs> we're here for an education session as well. <laughs> That's right. Um, so, so let's put it this way. We look globally for an audio ecosystem. I always wake up in the morning and I say, if I drive past and the big podcast bus goes past and we're not driving the bus, as the largest operator of audio in the Southern Hemisphere, that would be a travesty of justice. 
So that's the first thing. So the first thing is we went all around the world, the US and UK, broader part of Europe to find people we could work with and learn from. Yep. So we're an early adopter. That was called Podcast One. The problem with Podcast One is it's on your app and all your Triple M and your hit apps are somewhere else. So you're going through multiple different pathways to get your audio ambitions. It's too convoluted, too hard. So the moment we did the Podcast One deal was the moment we started designing or thinking about how we could have an all-encompassing audio app. Yep. In doing that, we scaled the world again. Yeah, the BBC Sounds was just coming to, to bear. Mm -hmm. The ABC had theirs. There's iHeart globally, which is really a radio player mm -hmm. as opposed to an audio player. Mm -hmm. But that was about it. So we went, okay, we can't. We'll have to design our own. So in the first year of COVID, after three years of designing and iterating the product to make it better. Yep. So the first year, we gave it a, a project, uh, Hubble, I think we called it. Oh, um, Hubble. It okay. started and it finished, but we didn't launch a product, but we learned a lot. The second year, we put another one called Audio Pathways. We did it, started, finished. A bit frustrating for our board, to be fair, because we would go into a phase of investment and curiosity uh, and evaluation, but not come out with a product. After three years, we'd done enough investigation that we said we now know exactly what it was, and it was the moment we were going into COVID. So in the first year of COVID, we had 120 people employed within the company in a technology set across 15 locations, and we built Listener from the ground up, owned and operated by us, Audio Ecosystem. It now has our 100 radio. So think of it as the house of Listener. Yep. I'm going to ask you into my house. By the way, before you come in the front door, I want you to tell us a bit about yourself. I need to know a couple of things. I need to know what you like, what you don't like. So you're going to onboard through that process. So you turn from what has been a unknown person. Radio and TV principally is an unknown model. Mm -hmm. It's the mass reach model. So I'm going to send it out. I'm just not sure who's out there, but I know there's 7.5 million people listening, mm -hmm. but I'm not sure who you are. Yep. Come across to the world of listener. As you come in, I now know more about you. So we've moved from the unknown to the known world. We're now collecting data on the right-hand side. The first room on the right houses 100 radio stations. We also then created 25 music-only stations because we own Spectrum in DAB yes. um, in perpetuity, which we bought from the government. So that's the first room. In the room across the board, we'd created what is now 150 original Australian weekly podcasts with Australian storytellers. And in doing that, we've become the most prolific sure and largest podcast company. Then there's the Rowdy Room, which is a, another room down the hallway. And sports rights, fundamentally have been broadcast rights, one to many. Mm -hmm. But we've acquired in the last 18 months the digital streaming rights, which is an Australian footprint yeah. for the AFL, the NRL, and Cricket Australia. Cricket as well. yeah. So we now have that. Of course, in the room opposite that is the room where, you know, we are curious, we are creating investigations, and we are a high level of compliance. It's news and current affairs. So we have certain obligations as part of our license regime that we have for our radio and TV assets. So we have a very large journalist community. The issue is our journalists are spread across 65 markets. We're telling local stories in real time like no one else. So therefore, we're putting that in. Of course, the last room, and the, the door was locked for a while. It was called our international room. And we got to a point where on an economic model, once you've done all of the things that I just said, you can't do them twice. We could double the amount of 
podcasts from 150 to 300. But are the quality of the ideas in the next 150 as good as the first 150? Now, yeah. we'll always cull from the bottom and, and bring new ideas at the top. That's yeah. a regular feature. Yeah, right. But it's not inexpensive, but we don't have to do it twice. So we look globally at what is, who are the best producers of audio content in the world? And to that end, we onboarded the BBC. We onboarded Swartz Media, otherwise known as the 7am. Saw that. We spent 18 months negotiating with the two largest, most prolific podcast companies in the world called Stitcher and Wondery, mm -hmm. who produce magnificent product. And they've charged us exclusively with representing their interest in this region. So what we've now done is open the door to international content coming in where those companies won't come to Australia directly themselves. They want to come through our vehicle, through our vehicle and our vehicle. partnership. Yep. That has rounded out an ecosystem now. Now, the ecosystem, as you come in, you've told us about yourself and your preferences. We've invested in three companies in an equity capacity in tech companies. So we have an equity investment in a AI company that is a bit like Netflix. If you watch this, you're going to love this. We're the same. If you've just listened to this, you're going to love this. So we've got an AI engine behind watching where you go on the app as an individual. So this is your profile. Okay. So, and then what I will do, it's an entirely personalized suite of content just for Greg, no one else. This is not one to many. The ads you will hear are the ads we insert from advertisers Tailored for me. that actually think that you're going to respond to them. Okay. So all of a sudden you're into targeted addressable advertising yep. directed at you. Yep. Now we've just passed over a million signed in users. So we're sending out. 24 hours a day, simultaneously 1 million versions of listener. Now, we hope that'll become 3 million, 5 million, but that's no different to what other platforms at big tech are doing. We're just doing it locally. In doing it locally, we own the asset. We own the ecosystem. We can adjust the ecosystem. So we own our house. We're not renting or licensing our house. Others have elected to rent their house, yes. which means they, you know, it's hard to put up a picture. It's hard to change, you know, uh, any structure. We can change whatever we want. So we're into our 25th technical upgrade of the infrastructure of Listener since we launched it last February. Why? It's a bit like Amazon changed theirs about a, a, a thousand times a week. They change the color, the position of the button, the messaging, the font, um, because it's not working. And they know exactly where consumers are going on the app uh, or the website or whatever the case might be. And they adjust to optimize the outcome. We're doing the same. We're doing exactly the same. So we introduce a new button and we watch the button. We watch where people go to and from the button. Or if they don't use the button, therefore, it's useless. We might um, either change it, move it or delete it uh, and put something else in its favor. So therefore, working from the unknown to the known working from one-to-many to, to personalisation. Mm -hmm. And from that perspective, you now have a one-to-one -one relationship with your consumers, serving them content that is more relevant to that person, and hopefully that becomes more sticky. And if that becomes more sticky, you have a sustainable ecosystem for the future. So you need to do both. One must remember, not too many people are going to get a new radio for Christmas. I don't think a lot of people are going to go to JP Hi-Fi, Harvey Norman and say, I want a new radio. Mm. However, we've all got a mobile phone. Mm. So IP-enabled delivery and consumption of our product across any platform is the future. So digital consumption and listening is accelerating at pace. So we're just following the consumer.
So we could stay in the world in a risk-adverse world of building our own, deploying capital, uh, attention and time, or we could have just stood still and said, that sounds a bit risky and I'm not going to do it. We're now well and truly past the risk phase of listener. But I think it's haven't fair got, to- Haven't got to the return phase yet? No, we haven't. We haven't got the cash flow break even. That's fine. But we've but said to the market, the- this is when it's coming. Um, when is it coming? It'll be an FY25 okay. model. Remember that any digital company starts in exactly the same way, yep. where you will go through periods. So we've been through the ideate, the design, the deploy. So that's all finished. We are deployed. We did that last year. We've attracted a, a million people, uh, more than a million people to download it, but there's a million people who have signed in and okay. gone past the download into a more active phase. And that started at zero 18 months ago. During COVID. So it's it's- yep driving itself at pace. Advertisers say once you have pace and once you get momentum, you'll start to get a level of gravitas and stability in your data that becomes attractive to us as an advertising group. So therefore, we have 671 national advertisers now interacting with Listener. That's half of the universe of national advertisers. Right, okay. But it's half of the universe we didn't have three years ago. So therefore, we're creating a new income uh, revenues rising at somewhere between 40 and 50% per annum. In earlier years, it was growing at a higher level than that, but it's just a composition of people, all of the supply chain issues and what segments are performing and not. So we've got a foot in one camp, which is a very firm footing as the largest radio network in Australia with 100 radio stations, 25 music stations through our DAB set. Mm-hmm. And we're enormously proud of that and all the attributes that come with that. But on the right-hand side... We've got a growth engine, and the growth engine is about following the consumption of the consumer, moving into a one-to-one personalised manner with data collection and related uh, opportunity to expand our universe. And it's fair to say, as we own the asset, we can go wherever we choose to go. On the left-hand side, we are governed by regulation, which is called Australia. So we have a licence to operate Triple M and Hit Network or Fox Network across Australia. The listener product has no boundaries. That's right. We've already sunk the cost in terms of development, um, ongoing maintenance, innovation. It's it's centralised. It's already here. So if we wanted to pick the product up and drop it in another territory, we could. In well, actual you're, you're fact, having those discussions at the moment, are you? We consider all these things all the time because there are no boundaries to that. But you know, you have to do a business case. You've got to be curious and ask where. And if you did, well, you've got to you know, prioritise where you'd go. In prioritising where you go, you have to see what content might travel and what won't. And then you have to ask yourself, what is the essence of success in those particular markets? And it probably come back to localism. Someone in, um, I don't know, where, where should we go? Someone in New Zealand will want to hear a New Zealand story. Mm. So therefore, if you're not telling a New Zealand story, you won't be as successful as if you do. So it doesn't matter where you go. Localism is at the heart. So localism for me, coming back to your original, localism is Australian stories. It is state stories and it is a story about your town. And in some cases, it's a story about you um, and what goes on. And in that particular case, we are all over localism. So we say to ourselves, we are proudly national, fiercely local. And that combination suits us uh, for where we are at this point in time, but it epitomises what we believe within the company of SCA and our people believe who are deployed across 65 locations and they have some wonderful stories. We're just bringing them to life. 
Roll it forward 10 years, Grant. Is it going to be still SCA or is it going to be a listener? Um, listen, bearing, I think, bearing in mind the opportunity, that comes off. No yeah, boundaries, I think that option's open to us. Lesser regulation. Sure. Opportunity, as you say, to really know me and know my customer. Yes. Far better. Are we talking a massive transformation here? Potentially. Um, it depends on the trajectory. You know, at the end of the day, our shareholders want us to grow in a, you know, the fastest capacity we can, but in a, a measured manner, in a manner that inherently takes risk, but doesn't jeopardize the company. So it's a fine balance between each of those things. So will we be named SCA in the future? Well, we used to be named Southern Cross Stereo. Um, mm. And if you ever remember the logo, it was like a peacock against a this, against a that. I'm not sure too many people put much thought into that. Yeah. I changed that very quickly because it was made me feel old when I looked at it <laughs> um, and a little bit disjointed. And it was the culture of two things coming together that actually weren't together. Okay. So I just created SCA because it was the acronym. Will it be SCA in the future? Uh, I'm not so sure. Uh, I think I think we'll find a place where we'll transition to a different one. And if that's listener, because that is at the center of our universe. Yes. I can tell you that listener, unlike many digital products, listener sits at the heart of our business, in the middle. Everything comes into the middle of listener because it houses all of our assets. This is not what Channel 9 is to stand, where they're in different houses. Um, they might be part of the one company, but they are in different houses. We incubated Podcast One outside of our radio network until such time that it was mature enough to bring into the family and for it to hold its own. And then that morphed into Listener, which sits now in the center of the business. The major part of the consumption within Listener is our radio networks. So it started off as zero. We've now turned off uh, 65 apps. We turned it off the week before the respective grand finals. We turned off every app where you could actually interact with Triple M or Hit Network or Fox. We thought sport would be a conduit that if you couldn't listen to the AFL grand final as you have for the last 30 years, that would be a problem. So therefore, we turned them off that week. We turned off TuneIn, which was the Google-nominated uh, defunct for smart speakers. Yeah, okay. Why? Because... In our view, they were pirating. Uh, they were taking our content. They were repopulating it with their own ads, and we were getting zero. It was a breach of copyright in our opinion. Okay. So we turned them off in the middle of the year. We turned off every app, and everyone had to walk through our front door. And guess what they did? Came in. They walked through our front door. Consumption is now higher than it ever was in terms of consumption of listening online. We've got it across multiple platforms. So our distribution platform is across a variety of platforms and will continue across more and more platforms, mm -hmm. whether that be YouTube, whether that be um, TikTok, uh, platforms you wouldn't think because they are distribution platforms. Yes. So it is delivering your product at a time and place through a platform that is the consumer's choice. And once you break down the barrier that, you know, you're, you're hiding in your, uh, your commune saying, I'm not going to let anyone in, I'm not going to talk to anyone, and you actually open that up, all of a sudden you find new audiences, broader audiences, and those bigger audiences breed more inquiry from advertisers, which generate more revenue. And so the story starts in the positive way. It's the future of audio. Can you sort of set the scene where it's going to be in three, four years' time? You just talked about that just there, yep. but you've just done some recent travels. Yes. Where are we going? Yeah, we say audio is on fire and we believe it wholeheartedly. And most of the international community believe it. I can tell you that uh, Australia is very highly uh, considered on an international level. We're a very sophisticated market. 
We're a very curious market. We bat above our average on just about every measure in media, but that is also the case in audio. So I would say that audio is in great shape. And I don't say that because we're the largest audio provider in this country. I say it because I believe it. Just have a look at what you're doing in terms of consumption of audio each week than what you might have done five or 10 years ago. It's more. So radio is resilient. Um, It continues to grow, albeit at about a CPI rate. But on top of that, we're now listening to podcasts. Mm. People are listening to more audio books. People are listening to short and long-form stories. People are consuming more on the run, just not in the car. So the broad issue was radio was consumed at home. When the car was built, everyone said, oh, radio is a commute. It's when you go to work and when you come home from work. What we're finding is daytime listening has gone through the roof. People are using smart speakers and desktops at their workplace to interact with our platform. So radio is growing and will continue to grow and we will continue to experiment with more and more audio and the mobile nature of it allows us to take it anywhere and the consumer to take it anywhere and the fact that we're talking to them one-on-one is a wonderful opportunity. So I think it will continue at a pretty good rate. So in terms of innovation, where are we? Are we the follower or are we a leader? We're both. Uh, Depends on which segment you might pick. You know, we've just completed a five-year digitization program that we invested somewhere in the order of $70 million, 70 to $80 million of CapEx. So every one of our studios, which is about 300 studios across our 65 offices, is fully connected in digitized capacity. So we have state-of-the-art audio. We've also put in state-of-the-art video. So audio visualization is the future. If you're watching YouTube, I'd prefer to be watching this podcast. I'm still listening to it as much as uh, I'm listening to it. If you're watching Carrie and Tommy or listening to Carrie and Tommy's podcast, maybe you just want to see the expression on their face because it makes it funnier Um, or it makes it different and more enriching, which means you're actually broadening your capacity. So audio visualization is a theme. The one thing our company's now set up for is success in terms of that because we're fully connected. We have content management systems that ingest and play out uh, in both audio and video. We just need to use that. And we use that for social purposes for promotion. But in the future, it'll be more driving a business outcome in terms of revenue, awareness, and momentum. Advertising going up then on these platforms? Uh, yes. By that pace you want it to? Um, it's, yeah, I, listen, I always want more, you know, I'm sometimes disappointed because I want, uh, an acceleration that, uh, will impress the market and, you know, going out a few years ago and saying the, the market's up 60%, everyone said, yes, but off a low base and yeah, you go, right, right, yeah. and you go, absolutely. But it was a base that didn't exist. And by the way, I think we'll go up another 50% next year. That's true this year. Things change in the market that you can't control. We can't control supply chain issue. We can't control geopolitical uncertainty. We can't control those things. So we're controlling what we can control and we're challenging our uh, management executive and sales teams to do better at finding new people to come onto our platform and experiment with digital audio. And yeah, it is the 1,350 national clients, but we have 13,000 SMEs on our books. So the base of Facebook is not national clients. All the money is made through SMEs yeah, right. behind a credit card yep. that are on their platform. That's the place we want to fish. 
and you fish in that place, they're a very loyal group. Yeah. Um, they are fundamentally more focused on what they want. The national guys will say, oh, yeah, they're, they're less sophisticated than us. Might be true, but they know exactly what works and what doesn't work because they see store sales either go up or down or stagnant, and they see it in real time And because they, they're the owner uh, or founder of that particular business. So we love that connection with those local communities. Uh, and if that works, they share it with a friend and who tells a friend who actually all of a sudden you got that positive momentum. So, yeah, revenue is going up. Radio's had 20 consecutive months of growth as an industry. So did we fall in COVID? Absolutely. Every media company did. But have we had 20 consecutive months of recovery? Yes. We're still a bit behind pre-COVID. And that's purely a segmentation issue. Yeah, okay. It's because auto's not back. The brand's not back in the dealer principle, which is a massive injection of cash for us at a both Australia-wide level as much as a local level. There's just certain segments and the SME market is coming back. So, you know, we're growing exponentially in the uh, SME market, but we had to because it was later to recover yeah, sure. than the national. What about threats, Grant? If you can go offshore or go international, so can others. Yeah, they can. We don't worry too much about the threats of others. Again, we, we run our own race. But at the end of the day, we've finished a five-year digitization program. Not every company has started, let alone finished. Secondly, we share a lot of our strategy online because I'm not sure if everyone, um, you know, it's one thing to see, it's another thing to absorb and adapt that to your own environment and not everyone's of that position. You know, there's there's two leaders in the audio category which are really HT and E in ourselves, yes. otherwise known as ARN in ourselves. Yeah. We own our house. ARN rent their house. They've got the iHeart. They've been here since 2012. Yep. The end of the day, they want to rent the house. We want to own the house. So they can't take their product offshore because they don't own it. Mm. They only rent it. We can go offshore if we choose to go off. And if that's in our shareholders' interests, if it's not, we won't do it. But we have the opportunity to do it. So therefore, we're leading the market, growing the market, educating the market, and we'll do that together alongside our peers at Nine and Nova, uh, but they're less established platforms. So we've been in it longer, um, and I think the market is ripe for investment, education. We've seen all sorts of things happening in the media sector where everyone's just stopped advertising on Twitter because something's happened. That's an opportunity, I think. Yeah, exactly. Because if there's less money going there, there's more in the pot. That's right. If Facebook turn off their news feed, um, as they did for a short period under the news yep. bargaining code yep. with the government, and they're now threatening potentially they might do it again in the future – who knows? I see that as an opportunity because you know, the level of expenditure and investment in media for all the attributes of media is there. We just have to go and find those uh, those ponds and play in those ponds. And if we build and scale ourselves appropriately and have the right strategies deployed amongst our people, arguably we'll find those ponds and then we'll sort of interrogate and hopefully convert them to advertisers. Grant, how do you keep yourself so informed then? No, if you look at most chief execs, they've got to be on, on the edge, as you say, highly curious. Yes. I think that's pretty much most CEOs are similar in that regard. But you've got to be on top of your game, being aware of what's going to work, what's not going to work, or have the people around you to bring that to the table. But how do you actually seriously get stay on, on top? Because um, your pace is high, isn't it? Yeah, it's, and it's it's constant uh, on the way through. But, you know, it's, this is a team effort, as I said at the outset. It's a collaborative effort. Yeah. So, you know, before this, I went and sat at a coffee shop around the corner. I consumed um, 
four documents. Two of them I forwarded on to our leadership team and a few other executive because it would be of interest. So it's now circulating amongst those people being consumed. I would ask the same of them to me. Now, we don't share everything. I say, listen, if there's not a reason to send me something, please don't. And whatever you do, don't CC me if you don't think I'm needed, required. If it's of interest, just send it to me and I'll consume it and carry on. So you consume a lot of data. We keep international connections. Uh, We pride ourselves on those connections or relationships that we form internationally and locally. Yeah, okay. We like to play a bit of Switzerland. Like we're not, we're a public company uh, with a broad shareholder base. We're not owned by anyone. So people see us as, as a bit of Switzerland, both domestically and internationally. Yep. And that's maybe an opportunity for someone to, yep. to come and, you know, buy that asset if they choose to. But most importantly, we just continually drive forward. So the time I spend, and we remain nameless, but, you know, we had major groups in Europe all fly into London to meet us. Yeah, you were just over there recently, weren't yeah, you? Yeah, and they, they spent a day with us saying, yeah. you're about five years ahead of us. Really? How'd you get here? And we said, well, we started five years before that, or whatever the case was. And we said, no. And they said, oh, we haven't got to that point. These are very large groups. And they haven't got there for a whole range of their own reasons. So they see that, but we learn things from them. I'll have a cup of coffee with most people because I learn something every time. There's not many people I won't have a cup of coffee with because I'll learn something. I travel to 35 of our offices every year. I can't get to all 60. Uh, It's too much uh, around Australia. But I'll go and I'll sit down with the team. I'll spend two or three hours just talking to them. And then I'll get in the car or jump on a light plane. I'll be in the next place. And I'll do that. So it's about being very disciplined with your diary, um, being disciplined as to what you consume and what you don't, what's relevant and what's not. It's about the sharing mentality, which is a mentoring and development capacity within the organization. And if it's a great read, you should share it. If it's if it's crap, maybe bin it. What type of people do you surround yourself with? Different people. They can't be the same as me, um, God forbid. So you have to end up, one, they have to be experts in their field for whatever they're charged with doing. And our leadership team has changed over the years because we want different skills. For We used to have an engineering department, never a technology department. But, you know, when you own 73 TV towers and 300 smaller towers because of our broadcast footprint, yep. you need a lot of engineers. People used to climb up those things. That used to keep me awake at night. Yeah. We outsourced all of those or sold them all. Someone else's problem. So we're still on the tower. We just don't own the tower. We don't have to paint it, whip a snip around it, nothing. Um, you don't have to go out late in night or a bushfire or a flood. Yep. So we change all of that. So the people we I try and attract to the business are people who are experts in their field. By being experts in their field, that is the first step, but only the first step. The second step is that you have to be collaborative in terms of sharing and open to people around the table. So you've got to develop a culture within that leadership team that is highly collaborative, curious, and accountable. And once you have that, then I also say the information can't stop in this room. We have to share it every day. And whether we share it once, we have to share it 15 times because maybe they weren't listening the first 14 times. So therefore, we've got to share and we've got to share liberally. So this is not a point of, I know the information, I'm going to keep it to myself, which makes me stronger and fitter. I'll actually say the complete opposite. So all of that is an art form in itself in Mm. many respects, but that is a a good art form and it builds great cultures. And, you know, we take great pride in our culture. So what else is happening down at SCA? What should we expect in the next 12, 24 months? 
you get a bit of time off over Christmas, I'm sure you're going to think. So what's in the pipeline coming forward? Yeah, I'd like to think that there is a better appreciation for the listener product yep. as we've had today. A I'm bit going of to go back to education yeah. and say, this is where the company's uh, at. You know, we've got a fair bit of work. I'm onboarding a new CFO. You know, uh, Nick, who was our CFO for eight years, has gone back into infrastructure. We helped him. Um, we said goodbye fondly and we welcomed in someone else. And, you know, we're welcoming Tim. Tim is the current head of strategy and CFO of Walt Disney. And he's elected to come to our company because he sees great benefits. So he was pivotal to the launch of Disney Plus in Australia. Mm. And he said, I want to join your company. So we take great pride in the partnerships and relationships we have. I much prefer to have a good relationship than a good contract or partnership. You rip up contracts. You tend not to rip up relationships. So, you know, we treat people the way people need to treat us. So coming into the new year, we'll go to all of those people we have relationships with and we'll see how we can do better. And in us doing better, we'll make sure we're doing better for them. And if they're better, they'll do more work with us. If they do more work with us, they'll tell a friend. And all of a sudden, that referral model comes back to us. So we want to build more positive momentum and recovery. We want to put more cement around the base of, uh, of listener in such a mm, point that it enough. becomes entrenched where it is. Yeah. We're, you know, our grid's pretty full in terms of the content that we've got. There's not many in the world we now don't attract that we want. Uh, there's a lot of people we don't want, but the people we do want, we need to now deliver for. So this will be a period of consolidation and delivery for those partners to make sure that we continue with those partners for the long term, because that's really important. Uh, nothing worse than bringing someone on and not delivering to what you said you would, because they'll tell five friends. You're in a position as someone who can look at the barometer of the economy pretty easily. Where do you see us heading? Listen, I think there's a, a level of cautiousness in the market mm. at this point in time. I think we're in uncharted waters for many. You know, you just have to pick up a lot of the trade press and financial press to see the disparity in opinions. And these are very intelligent people yeah, who have done this for many decades yep. and you're getting polarized views in mm. terms of where we're heading. So what's, I, your, what's your gut? For I you? tend to take the middle road. Not what everyone else is saying. What are you actually really thinking? What do I think? Um, I actually think we're in an interesting position because we haven't fully recovered yes. as a company. So therefore, one must expect that if we do all the right things and that we our consumption continues to either main, be maintained or grow as part of audio, yes. that in actual fact, we still have some room to move on the positive. Okay. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, yeah, we have to organize ourselves really well because there will be people who will stop advertising. Some of the e-commerce guys are going through a world of pain. That's right. And they've been a source of new growth and income for us. So we'll have to go back and replace them. And we might have to replace them with more traditional advertisers as opposed to e-commerce advertisers. Yep. Yep. I think that'll happen. And that's that sort of national to local advertising model on the, on the way through. I think interest rates are really pivotal psychologically and physically. Yep. I remember having a 17% interest rate when I bought a place uh, when I was a bit younger. I didn't think much about it. It cost me a lot of money at the time, and I should have kept that place in Noosa. But at the end of the day, I didn't. I sold it because the interest rates were too high. Yep. You've got people who have been used to uh, a low interest environment who have extended themselves. But last night, I saw that property prices might go up by 9%. I saw that too. Mm. So to that end, I'm not sure what's right or wrong. I've made more money from property on a personal wealth level than mm -hmm. I have uh, necessarily with some of the fluctuations in share market. But if you're looking at your clientele, yep, based on what you learned in the last couple of years through COVID, 
are they still going to think they should be a discretionary spend or will they change their mind now bearing in what you said? Yeah, behavior And consumption changed. had changed, right? And it's mm-hmm. increased. So if I want to knock off the enemy across the road or down the street, Again, it might best to start investing in you a lot more. Yeah, so, some parts of the market will think about that. Some move between brand and tactical all the time. And I, there's no right or wrong answer there. Uh, so I'm not avoiding the question, but certain industries will say, we've gone all out brand. And when there's great economic conditions, people lean into brand advertising and brand building more often. Yeah, but is that the smart thing? Or is it best to do it sometimes when there's not the best economic conditions? That's the other side of the coin. You know, you come back and you say, now is the time, if because you can increase your share of voice. That's right. Increase your awareness and actually grow ahead of your peers in that time by continuing to invest or invest more because yeah. you, you're more prominent in the market, Correct. cluttered marketplace. That is absolutely true. But will everyone adopt it? I'm not sure. Yeah, fair enough. So it's, it's down to different categories, how they see it, availability of stock, supply chain issues, um, transformation of industries. All of those things come together, and then it comes down to a company level. So we spend a lot of time talking to companies about their business, how they're going to invest, how they evaluate return on investment in media. And when you get a return on investment model, that marketers and most importantly, their CFOs understand you don't become a discretionary spend, you become a necessity. And therefore, they tend to leave it alone and look at other parts of the business. If you don't do that work, you're back in discretionary. Mm. Grant, how much longer are you going to do this role for? How much longer are we talking for? How much longer uh, am I doing this role for? Listen, that's not my decision half the time. No, I know that. I know Um, that. At the end of the day, I'm here at the bequest of shareholders and the board. So it's a better question for them. Mm -hmm. You know, I have a lot of shareholders that say to me, as I meet with them on a very regular basis and talk at conferences, they say, you seem to still have the energy and the the acumen and the the capacity. And I say, absolutely. And I'll let you know when I don't. Um, But, you know, I've grown up in this industry, as we've talked about. I thoroughly enjoy it. I never like a steady state. and fundamentally, I, I like to improve and develop. The pivotal point for me will be when I decide that, you know, I don't want to work anymore. And that point isn't here yet. Whether someone makes that choice for me is a separate issue. Sure. But sure. at the end of the day, you know, I work on a theory that um, I've thoroughly enjoyed. I've had a very privileged life within media. Media has taken me all around the world. Mm. Media has taken me to different places, forums. I, you know, I was recently listening to uh, Admiral McCraven, who was head of command forces and the deputy director of the CIA in New York at a conference of 150 people. And I was one of two Australians in that room. Been going to that room for five years now and hope I'll be doing it for another five. And they bring That's out privilege. some interesting things. It's a privilege. So I've spent time and I've, you know, I my work-life balance is great. Um, I take all my holidays every year, okay. even sneak a couple in if I can. <laughs> so I'm in the negative as I, as I am because I love travel. I love photography. I love doing things. One of my girls is overseas. You know, they're both out of the home, so I'm an empty nester. Um, so the one thing I don't want to do is get to a point where – you say, listen, I had the opportunity to go and travel the world and do things and I kept working and I didn't get the opportunity. And, you know, your physical and mental capability and capacity. And I've got a lot of older friends because a lot of those guys have been uh, mentors uh, and some of them say, I retired too late. 
but they are older than me by far. But at the end of the day, I don't want to be that person that says, gee, I stopped working and fundamentally I didn't have the capacity to do everything I wanted. So, uh, you know, I still want to get on planes and trains, not on ships just yet. To that end, the timing of my choice will be when it's right for me and my wife and family. And I haven't, you know, I'm not going to share when I think that is. Uh, but at the moment, my capacity and I think my contribution to the company is solid. Um, the issue is how can I improve it? And how can I also prepare for when I'm not there? Yeah. And I wasn't trying to look for the, um, the gotcha question, just so yeah. you know. It's more the fact that you've done TV, radio, now audio. Yep. What's the next big play or fascination that you really want to get your hands yeah, dirty? One of the things I deeply enjoy is transformation. It's taking, it was taking what was SCA, which was a bit lost and a bit broken and turning it into something that was better. Okay. Every second company out there in Australia is going through transformation and not all doing it well. No, not all. And everyone talks about stuff they don't understand. And there's a lot of cliches that are used. Yep. We think we've put the rubber on the road very clearly. People say, oh, it's risky. You say, absolutely. They say, it's expensive. You say, it certainly is. And they don't expect you to be honest and say that. But at some point you say, yes, but the investment phase will start to slow down. The revenue will pick up and the jaws of profitability will be upon us. And then we're into a, a great future from that point forward. So I think those are universal or global skills yep. that can travel. So what's the art of transformation? The art of transformation in my mind is clear evaluation and understanding as to what your steady state is. And a lot of people don't know where they're at. People I meet with overseas, one of them was quite honest and said, we're five years behind you. Another one said, well, we're not sure how far we are, where we are in the journey. And you go, well, you should know because you're a very large company, whoever that might be. So I think it's a lot of work and evaluation. Like coming into SCA, I knew the company for a long time. I used to sell TENS affiliation to SCA. Yep. So I knew about the TV, but I didn't know about radio. What I knew from radio was radio was underserved. And most of the radio industry were very subservient to other media. And I said, no, 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 we're all equal. It's the same thing. The people in the metro market said, no, we're superior to the regions. I said, no, you're not. We are all equal. So the facilities, operations, and access to training and development is as equal to someone in Sydney or Melbourne as it is to Bunbury and Cairns, in my opinion. And it has to operate there. It has to be a level of equality. So you take those skills and observations, and when you go into any company or market, you just evaluate and you spend time understanding where they're at. You then have to understand where the industry's at and where you know where the industry's at, you then have to understand the ambitions of the key stakeholders, which could include shareholders, board and related figures. Mm -hmm. And from that, you can craft a very clear plan. Then you have to be disciplined in putting the plan to work, the people that will work on it, both in terms of their skill and their attitude, because if their attitude and behavior doesn't match their skill, they shouldn't be on the team. And therefore, you assemble the right people to actually move forward. And then you just drive forward with absolute blinkered vision, in my opinion, to get to a point where you meet those regardless of everyone else. I can wake up and read about myself of things I have or haven't done, which are grossly inaccurate. But what can I do about it? So you sort of got to pass it away and sort of say, no, we know the vision we've created. Um, we know the stakeholder support we have. And we have to reach the top of the mountain. So in a listed environment, is it easy to get transformation done? Transformation in listed environment is easier in better economic conditions than tougher economic conditions. You know, because 
in tougher economic conditions, you will have investors who don't know as much as we do about the business. That's and right. You're not, the expert, right? They're not charged with that. Yeah. But they'll, they will say, can you pause that? Because, you know, let's save cash. Yeah. And you go, but if I Don't save worry. cash, I'll miss the window. Yeah. And if I miss the window, you'll only criticize me in a 18 months to two years' time. So, yeah, it's it's hard. But, again, I don't think there's a right or wrong time. It is the right time for the company wherever you are in whatever industry you are. We are investing regardless of the economic conditions. Yeah, you've made your mind up on that, haven't you? Well, the company has it the st- and the strategy dictates it and the board's endorsed it because – if we don't transform, we might wake up in better economic times or worse economic times and not be in control of our future. And if we're not in control of our future, we've dropped the ball. So therefore, we have no choice. The substance of the investment is a separate matter because it's your ability to pay for it yeah. whilst also returning to shareholders increasing value, dividends, whatever the case, buybacks, etc. So from that perspective, yes, there's some governance around that, but there's no better time than the present to do it. And by the way, yeah, okay, what is the economic backdrop? It is what it is. Grant, if you're looking back to that young man who was leaving Newcastle, coming down to Sydney, what advice would you give him now? Same advice I tell myself every year. It's be passionate, be curious, be loyal, uh, be open and be honest. On that, Grant, thanks very much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to No Limitations. 